tonight. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Peter Zutland, New York Times best-selling author and author of Rescued, What Second Chance Dogs Teach Us About Living with Purpose, Loving with Abandon, and Finding Joy in the Little Things. There are over a million strays living on the streets of Houston alone, says Peter, and that number will only continue to grow in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Peter has considerable on-the-ground experience with Houston's stray dog problem and has worked closely with the Texas rescue efforts. In his latest book, he interweaves heartwarming and humorous stories, lessons, and advice from countless families who have welcomed second-chance dogs into their homes and the transformative effect of these adoptions. Uh, Peter is featured in the Boston Globe, LA Times, AARP Magazine, and many more. Welcome to the show, Peter. Nice to have you here today. Good, Good morning, Catherine. Glad to be here. All right, so second, I mean, we have, I guess I didn't realize how many dogs there are out there on the streets. You're talking about millions, uh, not only obviously just in Houston, but all around the country. <clears throat> and these are, what do you call them, second chance dogs. So right. talk, yeah, okay, talk to us about second chance dogs. What are they and what, well, in your book, Rescued, what do they do for us? What are the transformative effects of adopting a second chance dog? Well, you know, people are usually shocked when they hear the statistic that you mentioned, that in Houston alone, there are over a million strays that are struggling to survive on the street. This is a problem throughout the country, but it's largely concentrated um, in the southern tier of states. It's also a problem throughout the Caribbean and in other parts of the world. When I say second chance dogs, I mean dogs that need another chance at love, who need a home. Many of these are beautiful, wonderful dogs, either struggling on the streets or have somehow managed to land in shelters, primarily in the South. Um, And these are typically high-kill shelters where up to 90% of the dogs that come in will never leave. And back in 2012, we took a chance on a dog named Albie, who was in a shelter in Louisiana, and He's turned out to be the most incredible creature. I was totally unprepared for how deeply in love with him I would be and how, how much compassion he would draw out of me when I thought about the plight that he had been in. He had been picked up as a stray in central Louisiana, brought to a high-kill shelter, and was very lucky to survive for five months thanks to a volunteer who took a shine to him. And in the United States alone, we're euthanizing about 700,000 dogs a year in shelters. And they're dogs just like Albie for the most part. Peter, why are these dogs, why are more of them in the South as opposed to the North? What's the reason for that? A loaded and complicated question with no easy answer. But, and, and, you know, to answer it, you have to generalize. And I want to be clear that a lot of Southerners are the people doing this great rescue work who are saving these dogs from bad fates and finding them homes up north. But they will tell you themselves that in certain parts of the south, this is largely a a cultural result of a cultural phenomenon. It's the way people think about themselves in relationship to dogs. You know, up here where I live in New England, for the most part, we think of dogs as family members. 
and they live in our homes, they may sleep in our beds, they're with us in the kitchen as we prepare meals. In parts of the South, that simply is, is kind of a foreign concept. Um, you know, many people will get dogs for a particular purpose, for example, hunting dogs. Um, I actually suspect, although I don't know for sure, that our own Albie was someone's failed hunting dog. He's a Labrador retriever mix, but he won't swim. And if you're hunting waterfowl and expecting him to, you know, retrieve a duck, uh, he's not going to do it. And in Louisiana, for example, shelters will tell you there's a huge spike in the number of strays at the end of hunting season. Or people will get dogs uh, for protection, and they don't really, you know, relate to them in the same way. Now, again, that's a broad stroke. I'm not talking about everyone. But what compounds the problem is that in certain parts of the South, there isn't a strong spay-neuter culture. So you've got a lot of dogs that may belong to people, but they roam freely. They're yard dogs, um, and they reproduce freely. Uh, And keep in mind, if you've got a stray population of, let's say, a million in Houston, dogs that don't actually belong to anyone, uh, there's no one to bring them to a clinic to get spayed and neutered. So the, you know, the, the natural thing happens and these populations start to explode beyond control. Um, does, this dogs, have to do, does this have to do with, um, I guess, socioeconomics, that they, there are more dogs, more people? I think... I mean, that people I, don't... Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think part of it, a little bit of it is geography. You've got dogs that um, can survive outdoors year-round, um, uh, you know, in the climate there, so that, you know, dogs that are left to their own devices, for example, in northern New England, you know, may not survive the winter. Um, it's also, to some extent, in my experience, um, it's something, it's a political problem as well. Uh, I can just give you a quick example. When I was in Louisiana a couple of years ago, animal, animal advocacy groups had successfully lobbied the Louisiana state legislature to protect hunting dogs by requiring that hunters or anyone transporting a dog in the back of a pickup truck that the dog be secured in a kennel and that the kennel be secured to the truck. But that law only was going to apply on highways with a speed limit was 75 or higher. And Governor Jindal, who was then the governor, vetoed the bill, saying that Louisianans didn't need the nanny state to tell them how to take care of their dogs, that they knew how to take care of their dogs themselves. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case uniformly. So there's a lot of resistance to even, you know, any kind of legislation that would, you know, impose restrictions on, on pet owners to, to try and encourage more humane treatment. Um, of their pets. So the reality is for many reasons, the, the problem tends to be concentrated in the South, but it is truly a national problem. So what about, let's talk about what the dogs, I mean, cause you have a lot of stories in your book and, and uh, about the, the personal stories, the things that, that how, jo- do- how these dogs have transformed us humans uh, in, in such a positive way. And for a lot of different kinds of groups, like from senior and people with disabilities and just those of us, I think you mentioned uh, in your book, like you just, you know, you were an empty nester and your kids mm-hmm. left and you need somebody to nurture. And I, uh, I get that. I think a lot of people do, probably a lot of baby boomers do. But, uh, and so, you know, I think one of the things you said, the dogs really tend to 
humanize us. Um, so let's talk about that. Sure. Well, you you touched on it. You know what? We I was resistant for twenty years of marriage to getting a dog, and when I my younger son was about to go off to college, I kind of looked over the horizon and saw this empty house and. You know, just wasn't ready to be done, and I, that's when my kind of wall of opposition cracked, and I agreed to get a dog. And as I said, I was not prepared for how much I would love this dog. And there are, you know, I think that every dog, in some fashion or other, is a therapy dog. I tell stories in my book about, as you mentioned, I interviewed a man who was just about to leave Florida prison after 15 years who participated in a program where they bring rescue, you know, stray dogs, rescue dogs, into the prison to be socialized by prisoners who work with trainers to get the dogs ready for adoption. And he fell in love with this dog. And this dog stayed with him till he was released last Christmas and has really eased his transition into the real world. And, you, have to, you know, for a person with a past, you know, difficult past like this man, Jason, this dog doesn't judge him. The dog doesn't know what he's done. The dog doesn't know that he's in prison. And that's very therapeutic, to have a non-judgmental companion. I, I interviewed people, a woman, Ellen Lee, who uh, is in a wheelchair now and has a service dog. And having that service dog take care of her is great, but it gives her purpose to take care of him. And it also has expanded her, her world, because when she goes out, Wherever she goes, she has this companion that people are curious about, and he starts a lot of conversations. But those are, you know, special cases, but I think that every dog is a therapy dog in, in a number of ways. They, they require us, I think, first and foremost, to be compassionate. You know, unless you really have a heart of stone, when you have a dog that comes into your home and you know that they've had a difficult beginning in their life, it draws out the compassion in us. They compel us to be more patient. You know, dogs are not going to necessarily come into our homes anxiety-free. And this is true of dogs that come from breeders or pet stores or from shelters. You know, they're individuals, and we have to treat them as individuals and help them overcome their, their fears and their anxieties. And it just requires that we be patient and let them live their lives as dogs. Well, you know, one thing you say in the book, and and I just, because you're kind of touching on that, is that the the dogs, they are unique, they have their own personalities, their own anxieties, their own, um, you know, things that they can't do or issues they have to work on, just like we do, just like our children Mm do, Uh, and you have to accept that and, and, and deal with that. But the other thing you do say is, and people, I think, sometimes tend to do this, Dogs are not children. Dogs are dogs, and there is a difference. So, uh, yes. and yeah. So, and I, sometimes that's an issue too. I mean, you you go in in families, particularly where you have the dog, they're treating them like a child, but they're not a child. So, let's talk about some of those differences. Yeah, uh, you know, I I think you're right. I mean, you, we have kids; they don't come with guarantees, <laughs> and most of us have parents we have all learned that. And that, neither yeah. neither do dogs, but. Um, you know, I just think it, it requires patience. Um, it requires compassion. And I think you just have to understand that dogs are driven by, by instinct. And um, 
They are not going to respond to us and our instructions and our cajoling the way that our children will. And I think we, you know, most of the adoptions or relationships with dogs, if they don't succeed, it's often because people have unrealistic expectations. You know, dogs are sort of perpetual two-year-olds, no matter how old they get. And in that sense, we are in that sort of parental child, parent-child relationship with them because they're very dependent on us. They're dependent on us to feed them, to take them to the vet when they're sick. Um, but we have to be careful not to cross the line and raise our expectations to the point that we're, they're going to behave the way we kind of would wish them to behave or the way we sometimes teach our children to behave in certain circumstances. They may not always be perfect. Um, and we have to, I like to say, we have to let them indulge their dogginess um, and let them live their lives as dogs and not subject to our unrealistic expectations that they're going to be perfectly behaved human beings. Well, also uh, on the other side, I think I know people who have adopted dogs who the dogs are like children in the sense that they they will not take a trip or they will not go to a restaurant or they will not go to certain places because the dog can't go. Now, what do you think about that? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I, we ran into this situation early on when we left Albie, who had just come to our house, you know, a few weeks before, and we went out to the movies one night, it was, in a way, like leaving our children home for the first time. Some of the emotions that you feel around these issues will be very familiar if you've had children. But I had to keep reminding myself that, you know, if we, we can't shut our lives down, the dogs will adapt to us. You know, it, I'm, I'm just concerned that people will anthropomorphize their dogs to an extent that isn't really fair to the dog. But I do understand that feeling of protectiveness. Um, when we go away, for example, without the dogs, you know, we think about them, we miss them. Um, I wonder what's going on in their heads. Do they know, for example, that we are coming back um, and that they don't need to worry about that? Um, and I think it's okay, you know, to indulge our dogs, as long as we don't go too far and set up unrealistic expectations for them. But yeah. I certainly can empathize with people who have trouble leaving their dogs behind, um, you know, even when they're going away for a couple of days. It, you know, I feel those pangs. Yeah, so there are there is that issue of, in social work terms, of separation anxiety. It does exist. Mm-hmm. It does occur with your dog. Uh, what about, you know, you're talking about adoption. What are the criteria for adopting a dog, let's say you want to adopt one of these abandoned dogs and at a shelter, do they do the same or similar kinds of things they do if you want to adopt a child, for instance? Because, you well, know, there you could know, be, yeah. It's interesting you should raise that. It's, I mean, there are many different rescue groups, many different shelters, and they set their own rules. There are no uniform rules for this. But I advise people to work with a rescue or shelter that you have checked out. In other words, you've gotten recommendations from other people who have worked with them before. A responsible rescue organization, as you are checking out the dogs, should be checking you out too. To, make, to set the dog up for success and to give it the best chance of a, you know, of a happy outcome, it's important that the match be carefully made. Now, it's not as rigorous, obviously, as adopting a child by any means, but don't be put off by the fact that 
a rescue organization that you may be interested in, in adopting from is going to ask you for references. They may come, have a volunteer come to your house and have a home visit. We did. Uh, we had a home visit when we were adopting Albie and were asked a lot of questions about our lifestyle and uh, our yard and you know, a lot of questions where they were kind of probing to make sure that this would be a good match. You know, keep in mind that these dogs, many of them have been from pillar to post, and rescue groups are not eager to put them into another difficult situation. Um, so ask questions. If the dog is being fostered, uh, talk to the foster. Um, you know, look into it. Really, you know, just don't fall for the cute picture, which is important, um, but find out as much as you can by talking to people who've either worked with the dog in the shelter or, as I said, if they've been fostered, talking to the people who have lived with them. Um, and just, I would also just encourage people, don't make an impulsive decision. You know, this isn't like buying a mattress where you, you know, you're on a trial for 30 days and look at it as something, oh, I'll just return it if it doesn't work out. Yes, you can. Most rescues will require that you return the dog to them if it doesn't work out. But don't go into it just thinking, oh, I'll just try it out. You should be going into it thinking, I'm committing myself to this dog for its lifetime. That's only fair. Um, and, and isn't there a difference? I mean, if you have a dog that's been living on the streets and just fending for itself or him or herself, mm-hmm. uh, that presents a whole, I would imagine, a whole uh, sort of, uh, background of, you know, emotional stress for the dog. They have to get used to living in a very yeah. different kind of environment where they, they are safe, but they don't maybe perhaps know that they're safe. So, right. Yeah. Right. Well, this happens, as I said, many different ways. A rescue organization that is taking dogs from shelters for adoption is uh, putting them uh, in foster situations. They're not just, you know, taking them, grabbing them, and handing them off to you. If you go to a shelter, um, Catherine, are you there? I'm here. Okay, sorry, I heard yep. a beep. Um, yep. If you know, if you go to a shelter, they have they should have a lot of volunteers working with these dogs over a period of many weeks to socialize them and prepare them for adoption. There are no absolute guarantees, but if they're doing their job carefully, they are not going to send a dog into a home that they don't feel can be trusted to adapt to that home. That's why it's important to ask questions and to work with a reputable group. Yes, these dogs, you know, come with sometimes mysterious pasts or sometimes we know, um, you know, they've been in bad situations. But one of the great things about dogs is that for the most part, they don't live in the past, you know, and that's part of what I think is so therapeutic about them. They tend to live in the present and in the moment. Um, So, yes, they may have had bad experiences, which, you know, require some work to get over. Um, but they don't tend to carry the past with them the way we do. And because they, they also don't tend to worry about tomorrow or formulate worries about tomorrow, they kind of live in a way that I think many of us wish we could live, which is to say more mindful, more mindfully in the present mo- moment. Um, yeah. I just would tell people that for the vast majority, these adoptions work out really well. It's not a perfect science. But they really do, for the most part, these dogs do make the adjustment 
And I think many of them sense when they are safe and secure, and, um, and they will let you know it. That they are well taken care of. But what about, uh, this is another question, what about medical expenses? Because perhaps if they haven't, you know, they have been on the streets, they haven't been taken care of, they haven't been going to a vet on a regular basis. I mean, that can make a difference in terms of their health. So, Right. Well, these dogs are not going to be, first of all, when you adopt a rescue dog um, from a reputable rescue, that dog will be current on all vaccinations. It will be tested and treated for heartworm if it has heartworm or other parasites. Um, You know, if you are dealing with a reputable organization, they are not adopting out dogs they know to be sick. Uh, Do some dogs later manifest illnesses? Yes, it can happen. But again, your chances of getting a healthy dog are very good if you're working with a reputable organization. And dogs that are leaving the South through, um, through these rescue organizations will also be spayed and neutered or they will not be transported. Now, that's not to say that you're, you will never have medical expenses with a dog. That's another thing people need to be realistic about. Just like children, you know, dogs need to go to the doctor regularly. Uh, they need periodic vaccines. They need to be treated uh, prophylactically for heartworm and ticks and so forth. Um, you know, we have three rescue dogs, and we just you know, spent $700 at the vet yesterday, um, mostly on preventative um, medicine. Uh, but that's something else to carefully think about. It will be an expense. I highly recommend people look into uh, pet insurance. Um, it's really certainly helped us out. And you kind of know that, you know, your costs won't be unlimited and that if you ever have to make a difficult decision, uh, money won't come into it. Um, but but you know, that's part of the reality of having uh, another creature to take care of in your life. Yeah. So it's important to just be aware of what you're doing in terms of adopting these dogs. Just just be in the know, obviously, yeah. um, and, and be realistic about it. What about... I know you've written about PTSD and how um, dogs can help vets, for well, instance, with you know, PTSD. How do they, yeah. yeah. There are service dogs uh, specially trained to help uh, veterans with PTSD or to help people with all different kinds of, of disabilities. Um, some are you know, specially bred to be uh, guiding, eye, you know, um, guiding eye dogs. Um, that many of the dogs that are trained as service dogs are, in fact, rescue dogs that um, you know, have come from shelters and then go through special training to be uh, therapy dogs. I wrote about one dog in upstate New York named Tabiso. He's now made, I think, 1,000 visits to classrooms and assisted living facilities and nursing homes, and he was, he was somebody's throwaway dog. And now he's this incredibly gentle, trained um, therapy dog that you know provides comfort to people and you know in difficult situations. Um, so he's a celebrity. You know, he's, he's a celebrity. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I, and that's the well. You just brought it up again because I'm thinking you know with the aging population and baby boomers and people mm-hmm. 65 and over and lonely and maybe sick maybe not but just lonely that these dogs really do well with that population and uh, provide really good, yeah, whether not necessarily in nursing homes or assisted living facilities, but just in general, people living in their own homes, aging in place. 
Right, and I think that's you know where sort of the matchmaking aspect of this comes in for rescue groups. For example, if you are older um, and maybe not as active, then you certainly don't want a high-energy two-year-old lab, um, you know, that you can't keep up with. You may want a smaller dog, one that's you know maybe less active. But I think what dogs do for these people, for people in these situations, is they just provide a sense of purpose. I think they help get you out of your rut. You know, the dog needs to be walked. They're good for your sense of well-being because you've got to look after them and make sure they're getting out for their daily walks, which means that you're getting out for a daily walk. Um, They are certainly conversation starters. I I can't believe how many people I've met just walking my dogs. Um, That if I hadn't had a dog, I probably would have walked right by them. Um, I mean, I can share one experience, personal experience, about how dogs lift people's spirits when my father-in-law was sick and, and dying several years ago and a gloom had settled over my in-law's apartment. Whenever we brought the dogs over, it was like the, you know, the mood instantaneously lifted and the, the focus was no longer on you know, the difficult journey that we were going through, but you know, sort of the antics of the dog. Um, so in that sense, you know, I, I, it's another way in which I, I think every dog can be a therapy dog in some form or another. And I have one more thing to add to that or one more st- story. I guess we only have a couple minutes left, and I want you to tell us website and places that we can go on the net to get more information about you and your book. But uh, I have a, had a friend who was divorced living in Washington, D.C., and she lived in actually in Georgetown, and she said people who have dogs, you know, they walk their dogs. That's how they meet each other. That's how they meet each other to, to you know, they, they have the dogs, and, and as they they uh, talk to people that they wouldn't have necessarily talked to, and uh, they meet up that way. I mean, Absolutely. If I knew when I was yeah. single what I know now, I would have had a dog when I was, when I was single. <laughs> That's right. You would have head, headed straight for the dog park, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, okay, so two minutes left, so tell us. Yeah, uh, and I want to mention the book again also, Rescued, What Second Chance Dogs Teach Us About Living with Purpose, Loving with Abandon, and Finding Joy in the Little Things, uh, Peter Zutland. But, oh, so give us a website or websites that we can sure. go to. Yeah, it, it's www.peterzeutland. I'll spell it, P-E-T-E-R, Zeutland, Z-H. E-U-T-L-I-N dot com. And I should mention, if people want resources, I did a previous book on a similar theme called Rescue Road, which is really about the entire rescue process and about the problem down south. And in the back of that book, there are a whole list of resources and organizations that, you know, that I have had direct experience with that I know to be reputable and to be doing this the right way. You know, as in any other endeavor, there are good operators and not so good operators. And, um, you know, you you really want to, as I said, talk to people who've gone through the process, talk to veterinarians, and, you know, you wouldn't hire a contractor or a lawyer without references. And I think that's key. And once you're in their hands, you're in good hands. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information. Uh, Peter Zutlin, um, have a good day. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, Joining me this morning is integrative and holistic medicine expert, Dr. Chris Gilbert, MD, PhD, and author of The Listening Cure, Healing Secrets of an Unconventional Doctor. Do you have chronic back pain or headaches? Are you struggling with your weight? Do you often feel tired? Your body may be trying to tell you something, says Dr. Chris Gilbert, who has dedicated her career to treating symptoms and illnesses that other physicians haven't been able to address. Dr. Gilbert explains her unique process for identifying the repressed emotions that may be the root of a multitude of symptoms. She has practiced with Doctors Without Borders, UCLA Medical Center, and in many other venues. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Gilbert. Thank you so much, Catherine, for having me on your show. Really appreciate it. Okay, so you have, well, you have your new book, which really outlines the, I guess, the, the, it's called i'm saying integrative medicine now sort of it's it's a that, that's sort of the term that they use um and that all of these problems that we may have that many of us or most of us suffer from whether it's obesity or headaches or back problems 
uh, doctors, usually, mainstream doctors, will just treat them with maybe medication, but they're only treating the symptoms is what you're saying. This is all a result of a lot of repressed emotions that we have, and that's what's impacting our body in a negative way. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we have so much stress nowadays that it impacts our body and gives us emotional um, emotions that are repressed and that cannot be expressed and that gives us stress and that gives us uh, a lot of physical symptoms. So, and only 3% of physicians in their practice address the original issues, the issues that are at the origin of the symptoms. And very often, to have a complete cure, the only way is to address the causes. But that takes a long time, or it could take more than five minutes. And physicians are usually not um, ready to do this. It's well, is that the reason? I'm going to stop you because is that the reason? Is that because that's is that the reason that they don't address the issues that are causing the symptoms? Because say like they have three minutes or five minutes or maybe even fifteen minutes because they don't take the time, or because they don't really understand the problem well, as you're describing it. Yeah, there's a combination of reasons. Uh, first, it's true they don't have the time. Second, if they had the time, they would not know how to address it because people would start crying in their office and they don't know how to do with that, how to deal with that. And they're not trained for that. And uh, the third one is, yes, it would take, like, it would open a, a Pandora's box with... Uh, a series of problems that uh, they would not know how to address. It would take one hour, maybe longer, and at the end, they would not know what to do, what to give, so it would be counterproductive for them. Whereas with five minutes, they give um, one pill, prescription, one or two pills. It takes a very short time. It's a quick fix. The patient is happy because they have a quick fix. The doctor is happy because it's a quick fix and well paid. And the pharmacist is happy because it gives them money, especially nowadays. The newer medications are very expensive. So everybody is happy in the short term. In the long term, it's not going to work because medications are going to give side effects. The patient is going to come back because um, still they will still have their pain that was at the origin. Plus, they will have side effects of the medication, um, and they will look for another quick fix. <laughs> and so it's kind of be- like a, rev- it's a revolving door. It's just a quick fix for the moment, and yes. So everybody... It, perhaps everybody but the patient is benefiting from the financial gain from all of this. Um, but the listening cure, obviously, which is the title of your book, uh, and you, the listening cure means listening to our bodies, right? Listening to what our bodies are telling yeah. us, which we don't listen tend to do because to, we communicate us. Yeah. yeah, listen to what your body is telling you because your body speaks to you all the time through pleasure or through pain. So it's like a little animal inside of you that tells you, oh, yeah, 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 I really like this. Uh, oh, by the way, um, excuse my French accent. I'm a, from a French origin. I was raised in Paris. So you hear a little bit of my French accent. I hope you can understand me. But, uh, so, yeah, this little animal inside of us is saying, yes, 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 I really like this, and it gives 
it, it gives us pleasure. And then the little animal says, oh, no, this hurts. You shouldn't do this to me. Or you shouldn't bend me in such way, talking as the back. Or you shouldn't feed me this because I'm, I'm getting sick. I have pain. So this little animal has a voice of its own, and that's our body. And if we listen to it, if we tune into it, then we find the origin of, of our pain or the, and we find what our body really needs. We are like give us an, I want to stop you there because I want to give a, a specific example. Let's say I'm your patient, I come into your office, and I'm complaining of chronic back pain. What yeah. do you do? Which would be different than, say, my regular uh, primary care physician who's going to give me some kind of an analgesic to make my pain feel better or some kind of medication. What would you do if I came in complaining of chronic back pain? Well, I would ask two questions. So the two questions are, if uh, your back had a voice, what would it say? That's the first question. The second question is, when did your back pain start? And what triggered it? Is there anything that you did just before or anything that happened in your private life, emotional life, just before your back pain started? Those are the two key questions. For example, if I ask you right now, Catherine, if your back had a voice, like focus on your and and the uh, listener could do exactly the same thing right now with us, like take a couple of deep breaths, just to tune into your back. So one deep breath, another deep breath, and then if your back had a voice, what would it say? Would it say, I feel tense, I feel good, I feel I have spasms in me, or I feel, what would it say? Like, well, my back would feel my back feels good actually. I don't have back problems, so for me, uh, I mean, I would just say that my back is feeling feeling relaxed. I guess would be the word feeling good, feeling relaxed, feeling good, exactly mm-hmm. good. Now, if you stretch your back a little bit, uh, move it to the right, move it to the left, uh, does it feel? Does it make it feel good, or does it not make it feel good? What we did say when you move it a little bit, when you stretch your back, like stretch your back, what what is it feeling? My back feels the same whether I'm stretching it to the right or to the left. Okay. So I don't feel any difference. Okay. Um, so that's perfect. So that's an example of tuning into the body. Like some people would say, oh, when I stretch, I feel so much better. Or when I, when I stretch to the right, I have a little bit of pain. When I stretch to the left, then I have less pain. When I stretch, when I bend forward, oh, it makes me feel so good because my vertebras are opening their space in between them. Uh, when I stretch backwards, uh, I don't feel as good. So that's the, that's the beginning of being in tune with the back and the different movements that it likes or it doesn't like. Uh, and being aware of this is just uh, the, be- the beginning of healing. Some people never, ever stretch. Some people stay sitting at a desk for five hours nonstop, without moving, without walking, without stretching, 
and the back usually hurts after five hours. And it hurts a little bit, but they're not aware of it. And if they stay longer and longer, the, the back will hurt more and more until the person is going to want to go to a physician to get a pill to treat the backache when the answer would be to really stretch more and to get up every hour or two hours and stretch and go for a walk and take care of the back. Well, I have an example of that, I guess a personal example, which kind of it just sort of reflects and validates in what you're saying. This was a few years ago. I think, I I guess it was sciatica, which is common, went to the doctor and, and he wanted to prescribe all kinds of medication. And I said, well, what Maybe I can do something, some kinds of exercises. He said, well, okay, you can try. probably won't work. Well, I did do the exercises, and after a few months, it did work. And I've never had a problem since. So it's kind of like validating what you're saying. Uh, But then I also want to go on to obesity. Because, you know, weight gain and obesity is a huge problem in the United States today. And you say, and I want to see how you do this, because with your listening cure, you can help people lose weight uh, or better than if you, the conventional diet advice that say we get from, I don't know, even nutritionists but, or, and or physicians. So how does that work? How does the listening cure work with obesity? Well, that is one of my favorite subjects because I treated so many people uh, with obesity and it works really well. The problem, and and in the book you have exercises at the end of each chapter because each chapter uh, shows a different way of healing, a different uh, technique, and at the end you can do all the exercises. But what I show in, in those chapters is you have the technique of giving each of your body part a voice. I'll give you an example of a patient that came to see me um, uh, a few years ago with obesity. I gave the, vo- the her um, mouth a voice, and the mouth said, "Oh, I really love donuts and cheesecake and and deep fried food. This really tastes really good and salty food and." Oh, that's a big pleasure of mine. But then I gave a voice to her stomach, and her stomach said, Yeah, but when all this food gets in me, then I feel heavy. And I feel if there's no food inside of me, then I feel anxious. And then I gave the back a voice, and the back said, but I feel so bad because all this weight is on me. It's like 50 pounds on me, and it really hurts. <clears throat> then I gave a voice to her knees that said, you know, I'm bone, there is bone against bone, and this really hurts because of this extra weight on me. And then I gave a voice to her mind that said, Yes, and each time I eat food, it's, it calms me down. I need the food to relax and to not worry. So then I describe the technique of bringing an inner mediator, which is a part of us, that can see the big picture and see that only the mouth really has pleasure. There's other organs that are suffering. And the key thing is that the stomach and the mind are really anxious. They're, and they're only eating just to calm the anxiety. So the question is, are there any type of food that are not going to make the patient gain weight? 
but will calm the anxiety. And they would be like things like tomatoes or cucumbers or celery. And for everybody, the food will be different. That kind of food specific to the person that will calm their anxiety down, that will still get in the stomach, but will not make them gain weight. Because so do you make them, so in other words, they become aware of their body and what this kind of food does to their body. And you're talking about, in this case, the person who's 50 pounds overweight. The only thing that's really getting satisfied is the mouth with the salt and the sugar, but then the rest of her body doesn't feel good. The stomach, the knees, all of those things. So I just want to, so what they'll be become more aware of the foods that are comforting to their whole body, you know, th- is that what you're saying? That that will the stomach will feel good and they won't feel heavy and overweight if they're eating, well, let's say cucumbers or tomatoes or, or whatever. Um, and then to constantly be aware of that so that you're, you make different kinds of choices for your food? Yes, exactly. Just be aware of that little little person inside of you that is a body that has needs and that needs to be happy too, not only the mouth, but the, the, the whole person needs to be healthy. Because so many doctors, so physicians are going to say, oh, you need this kind of diet, or you need that kind of diet, and they're going to name different diets. But this will work for a while, but in the long run it's not going to work because the body, the mouth will not like those foods. Uh, so it, it it, the mouth needs to be happy, too. It needs to give pleasure. So what kind of food will give the mouth pleasure without making the person gain weight? And it's, every individual is different, so I want to individualize or target or tailor the treatment to uh, specific persons. Because ultimately, we are married to our body. And when we're married, usually we can divorce, Right. But there is no divorce possible with our body. We can't say, oh, body, I want, I'm going to separate from you. I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to marry a younger body. Or I'm going to marry a body that you know, can metabolize food better. You, you can't do that. That sounds good. <laughs> you're married. Oh, I know. You're, stuck. Yeah. you're stuck with this body uh, until death takes you apart. So you've got to find a way to keep that body happy and healthy and your mind to be happy and healthy with the food that is available and that will, you need to compromise. Just like any marriage, it's got to be a compromise that works for all parties. So that's what so I do. So how long does this take? I mean, this is a process, obviously. Just It's not a one-shot deal. This is, uh, how long does this take and how long would it take, say, for your patient? This Well, take this patient who needed to lose 50 pounds did she lose 50 pounds? And, and Oh, yeah. How, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I had a lot of patients that lost weight, a lot of weight. Uh, so I don't see patients in my practice right now anymore because I want to, and that's the reason why I wrote this book, is to show people, <clears throat> is to teach people at a larger scale uh, what it is, because otherwise when I see patients in my practice, it's only one at a time. Uh, and so by writing a book, I can touch so many more patients and uh, I do public speaking to teach people how to do this so that it's just education, educational, because I think it's very much needed in this country. 
So, what about, uh, to, uh, Dr. Gilbert, what about are there actual, uh, uh, let's say, ailments or, you know, uh, physical problems that we have that are not caused by underlying emotional, you know, repressed kinds of emotions, but are purely physical in nature or not? They are, absolutely. But, and the, but the question is, what happened just before? For example, I'm going to give you a real example. Um, let's say you, a, a patient lifted up a very heavy weight and hurt his back, for example. But what happened just before, it's interesting to see that he lifted the the very heavy weight in the wrong position or he lifted it sideways. And what happened just before, it's possible that he had the bad news just before so he didn't think, he didn't focus on, on lifting this weight. He usually focuses on lifting the weight straight, um, bend his knees, but he had such a bad news before, he didn't focus on that and he hurt his back. Uh, the, another question is, what happened just before somebody got uh, diagnosed with cancer? Very often, when I ask the people what happened a few months before, they usually had a bad news, a very an emotional shock, something or a change of work, a very a much more stressful work, um, and then they got diagnosed with cancer. So it's very interesting to see and to ask the question: What happened just before? So I agree. In most cases, you need to treat the back pain, or you need to treat the cancer. You need to treat all the physical symptoms. But in addition, so in addition to conventional medicine, see why. Ask the question, why did this happen? And work on the why. Work on the emotional uh, origin of everything. Some of the other approaches I know you use as well are drawing, walking in nature. How does that work? How does that help to alleviate your physical uh, ailments? Oh, yes, and I I want to emphasize also that a lot of people keep repressed emotions inside of them. It's bottled bottled up inside of them, and it can't go anywhere, those repressed emotions, and that creates stress, which creates secretion of stress hormones like cortisol that depresses the immune system so they get sick more often, or uh, adrenaline, which gives them uh, higher blood pressure, faster heart rate, ultimately can be cardiotoxic. So I, I, I like the patients to express their emotions, express their anger, frustration, sadness, and how to do this in a safe environment is write in a diary or sing your emotions out or... Um, dance your emotions out or draw your emotions, make drawings, make paintings or sculptures, Uh, express whatever is inside. Don't keep it inside, but express it. And it's very beautiful sometimes what comes out of emotions, strong, raw emotions. But don't keep it inside because it could be so um, detrimental. I say that uh, hot emotions kept inside can burn its owner 
and that would not be good. So what? Yeah, in, I, yes, go ahead. It, it's um, it sort of sounds well. If you went to a psychiatrist, it would be a, a similar a psychologist. That that's one of the goals, obviously, in therapy is to do exactly that. Um, express your emotions. Don't keep them stuffed inside. It's uh, so if one went to you and for any one of these illnesses and you help, you would help them and all, I guess, very not only to talk about what's the, about these emotions, but as you say, you write them down any way that you can get them out any way that's, I guess, that the patient feels comfortable with sort of getting these emotions out and not keeping them stuffed inside and thus causing their illness or sickness or physical problems. Yeah, exactly. And the difference is that I address physical symptoms. I, I'm not going to address, the, the people are not going to see me because uh, they're depressed, for example. They're going to come and see me because they have physical symptoms like aches and pains. Fibromyalgia is a good example. Chronic fatigue syndrome is a good example. Those are physical illnesses, physical symptoms. And in order to address those, then I use, you know, uh, drawing or painting or uh, singing or this kind of techniques. So that's the leap, is to address physical emotions by art. Now, we only have like about a minute and a half left, so I want to, um, I mean, I think it's very exciting medicine that you practice. Uh, obviously, you can buy the book at bookstores every online. Um, I want to mention the book again, The Listening Cure, Healing Secrets of an Unconventional Doctor. And we've been talking to Dr. Chris Gilbert, MD, PhD. Dr. Gilbert, where else can we go uh, to get more information? What website about you and your book and, and, and your work? Uh, on my website, uh, www.drdlikedrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr